Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. This is Eric Gurna, your host from Development Without Limits. This episode of Please Speak Freely is all about food, the food we serve our students in schools and in after-school programs in terms of lunch and snacks and how that food gets to those students. In the first part of the show, I talked to Crystal Fitzsimons, who works with the Food Research and Action Center in Washington, D.C., and Crystal talks a lot about the the policies around uh, USDA uh, sponsored food for schools, um, particularly how after-school programs can access the new snack and supper programs. And um, we talk about the nutritional quality, that food, etc. Um, the second half of the show, I talk with Lucy Commissar, who is an investigative reporter who wrote a piece for the New York Times all about the um, backroom dealings around uh, the corporations involved in providing food to schools and school districts. And we get into some really interesting um, issues around social justice um, and the kinds of food that we serve students, particularly those in economically poor schools and neighborhoods. Um, and this is this for me, this is an issue that's really important to me. I love to cook. I love food. And I'm um, frequently appalled at the nutritional quality and not just nutritional quality, but just the, the quality in general of the, the food and snacks that we're giving young people um, in schools and other kinds of institutional and programmatic settings. So I was really excited to talk to Crystal and Lucy for this show. Uh, it's a little bit different because I'm talking to two different people in two different locations, but I hope you enjoy it. And let's first get right into the conversation with Crystal Fitzsimons. So I'm here with Crystal Fitzsimons, Director of School and out of school time programs for the Food Research Action Center. And Action right? Center. Food Research and Action Center. Okay. Do people call it FRAC? Generally? Yes. Okay. We go by FRAC, FRAC is the Food Research and Action Center, um, which is located in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, so, welcome to Please Speak Freely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was um, happy to have the opportunity to talk with you, Crystal, because as I was saying before we got started, I feel like the work that, that you and your organization do around uh, the, the role that schools and, and especially for, for us in the field of out-of-school time programs, the role that those programs have in the nutritional needs of, of kids and families and communities um, is something that is actually a pretty big deal and doesn't get talked about enough. Um, and you were saying that you've been attending a lot of uh, conferences over the last few years in the out-of-school time field to try to get that conversation going. Right. So I've been with FRAC for 13 years now and spend most of my time trying to figure out how to get low-income children access to the nutritious meals that they need while they're at school, mm-hmm. after school, during the summer. So we spend a lot of time coming to after-school meetings 
to talk about the after-school and summer nutrition programs and try and raise the visibility of the programs, have people know that they're available, and get, try and get people to participate in the programs because they're a funding source for after-school and summer programs, but they're terribly underutilized. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that a lot over the years, that the programs are underutilized. Could you tell us just a little bit in a sort of a nutshell what those programs are, what they do? Um, I, I know that a lot of people listening to this will already be familiar with it, but like you said, they're under, underutilized, so maybe some professionals in the field aren't really aware of what they have access to. Right. So the summer food program has been around for a long time. Um, it really was designed to take the place of school breakfast and school lunch during the summer because when the school bell rings at the end of the school year, um, kids who and families who relied on free and reduced-price school meals during the school year all of a sudden don't have access to mm-hmm. it. And research actually finds that food insecurity actually goes up during the summer months. Um, Even though most people are thinking about hunger during the winter, during the holidays, um, it's actually during the summer when food insecurity goes up. And it's in part because families no longer have access to free and reduced price school meals, school Mm -hmm. breakfast and lunch. Um, So the summer food program was designed to take their place, but we serve less than one in six of the children who rely on it during the school year. Um, And part of it is there aren't enough summer programs for low-income children. Um, And part of it is that the eligible programs aren't always participating. Um, But the programs provide a federal reimbursement for each breakfast and lunch that are served. And the sites can qualify by either being in a low-income area where half the kids are eligible for free or reduced-price school meals Mm -hmm. or where half the kids enrolled in a summer program are eligible for free or reduced price meals. And once the site qualifies, whether it's based on the area or based on the enrollment, um, all the kids who come to it can eat for free. So for a, a school or a program that's in an area that has at least half free or reduced lunch eligibility, even kids who, don't, who aren't eligible, who don't sort of meet that half, they can still Get right, the, the, the meals and snacks. Because you don't have to, tr- you don't have to show which kids right. are eligible. It makes right. the paperwork a lot easier. Like if summer programs had to individually qualify kids and then track each kid and then get reimbursed based on their household income, like they do th- during the school year. Usually, I mean, most summer programs wouldn't have the capacity to do it. Right. So it's sure. a way to make it easier um, and to bring kids in. And you know, if the kids are in the summer program. If they're there for six or seven hours, they all need something to eat. And it's better for the kids to be eating together, eating the same thing, mm-hmm. um, than to be singling out some kids. And are there programs that – or are there kids that get access to those meals who are not part of summer programs who just can get the meals? Right. So the summer food program can be at a local park. You could actually serve meals at a park uh, in my neighborhood in D.C., there's two summer food sites that open up for breakfast and lunch. Um, you can do it at a low-income housing center. You could do it um, at a swimming pool in Puerto Rico. They do it at the beach. Um, so you can just have a summer food site as long as you have people there who are willing to hand out the meals and take the meal counts. I mean, we really think kids need the food and the programming. And so we've worked very hard to try and pair the two. And we think the most successful summer food sites are the ones that have you know, good programming for kids because they need that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no requirement that they have to do any kind of programming. Mm-hmm. And do, does FRAC do much work around the, what the actual meal or snack consists of and why it consists of that and how it's sort of distributed and that, that whole system? 
Right. Uh, so, so all the meals that are served have to meet federal nutrition standards. Um, and they're based on the dietary guidelines. Um, they haven't been updated in a long time. Um, but what we do is we actually have developed this thing called the Standards of Excellence to try and challenge programs to serve more mm-hmm. fresh fruits and vegetables, more whole grains, low-fat milk, lower-fat protein. You know, we have sample menus up on our website. Um, and we, we've given out awards, but people can actually rank their programs bronze, silver, and gold and, mm-hmm. also, and use it as a checklist to challenge their programs to serve higher-quality food. Um, we also have, like, a vendor guide. So if you get your food from a vendor, how do you write a contract that actually ensures that you get higher-quality food? Mm-hmm. Um, so they do have to meet minimal nutrition standards. Um, there is a big process underway on the school lunch side to improve the nutrition standards, and we mm-hmm. think there's going to be new uh, regulations around that after the new in 20, early 2012, and next school year those are going to be implemented. Um, summer food, they haven't started working on that yet, but they are working on um, changing the nutrition standards for the after-school meal and snack program as mm-hmm. part of child and adult care food program. Mm-hmm. So they're working on it, um, but they do meet minimal standards that USDA sets. So you're going to see... For a lunch, you're going to see milk. You're going to see two different servings of fruits and vegetables. You're going to see a grain, and you're going to see a protein. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in working with a lot of after-school programs is that the there's a lot of waste that happens with the snacks. Mm. Um, in, just in that, you know, kids take a snack and they don't necessarily want to eat it, so they throw it out. Um, and then also in terms of just all the packaging that's involved, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering is has the sort of, has the green movement sort of touched these programs um, to address or not to address, but have people been trying to you know have the snacks and meals have less packaging and all of that? The waste is sort of on both sides. It's like there's waste because of the food that's not eaten, right? But there's what appears to me to be a lot of waste because there's so much packaging involved because everything is seems to be given in sort of these individual serving. Right, sort of, right. You know, like everything is its own little self-contained thing. Right. Well, so there's two things with that. One is, um, I mean, we, in, in a lot of our materials too, we talk about engaging the kids in developing what the snacks are and mm. what they look like um, because I think if you engage the kids – they're more likely to participate. I think if you introduce new foods that are healthier that kids aren't used to eating, you need to do, like, taste testing with them, need to tie in nutrition education. Um, But there's different ways to reduce that. Um, With the new after-school meal program and then with the summer food program now, um, you can do what they call offer versus served, which is where you offer mm-hmm. the, all the items, and the kids just have to take a certain number of them mm-hmm. in order for the meal to be reimbursed, which actually cuts down on plate waste as well. As far as the packaging, I haven't, I haven't heard that anyone's really taking a lot of proactive steps. I think they're doing more of convenience because they – like if you think about a summer food site at a park, you know, they're, they're delivering a meal to 50 kids. The easiest thing to do is to put it together and hand it out. Right. Um, but I, I think there are people who are thinking about it, but it hasn't really risen to the point where people are talking about it that much. Yeah, it, it always seems to me like there's in, – in our country, there's an obsession with um, sanitary sort of packaging and stuff like that. And 
so everything can be sort of portioned out, and it doesn't ha- that doesn't mean everything has to be individually shrunk wrapped in plastic or whatever. Because right. you go other places and portioned out can mean wrapped in a paper towel or just put into a you know right. a wax paper bag or something like that. But we seem to be going even as the green movement sort of keeps building up steam. We also there also seems to be more and more packaging. That's not just in these programs; it's everywhere we go. Right. Well, the, I mean the the meals ha- they're. There are health and safety standards with right. the meals, too, right. for the county health department. I mean, in some ways, I think it's probably easier for them to deal with food that's prepackaged sure. like that. Sure. Um, but we do, and I mean, we've also tried to encourage people to think about using local produce in the summer food program because that's, like, the best time. Mm-hmm. A lot of places are harvesting food then, and, you know, tying it into the summer food program makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, so there's a lot of exciting things happening, too. Yeah, you know, it's... It's interesting to me because it seems to me to be sort of opposing forces that there's there's all the regulations and the convenience and the people's schedule and the fact they don't have a lot of time to put into managing this. But then there's also what you're suggesting is that there's there's this notion that you can get young people involved with choosing what the snacks and the meals are. You can get you can get local vendors and local produce and and there's a whole locavore movement right that has mm-hmm. been really big in the last couple of years. And to, to be honest with you, I don't I don't see a lot of programs doing that. I don't hear a lot about that. I've um, I'm trying to remember where I was. I think I was in Newburgh, New York, recently, um, which is right near where where I live. And we're working with some after school programs there. And you know, there was kids were sort of complaining about the quality of the snack, and staff were saying that they felt like their hands were tied about what snack they serve. Mm-hmm. And it might not have been Newburgh, so forgive me, Newburgh, if I'm picking on you, um, but. They, the staff sort of felt like their hands were tied about what's, what snack they could serve. But then at the same time, they had clubs and activities going that were really focused on um, environmental issues. Mm-hmm. They were visiting local farms. Um, we have the Green Teen program there, which is part of Cornell Cooperative. Okay. There's a lot of youth work that's sort of looking at cooking, environmental things, um, agricultural, you know, all of that, which is such um, – Rich, which can be such rich vehicles for learning, and can be so engaging for young people. And then the health and nutrition education can be so can be built into that, and a lot of academic practice can be built into right. it. But these two things seem almost like they're they're totally separate, you know. So that we're doing all this great stuff with this one particular club of twelve kids, but then the program was 150 kids, and they're getting, you know, I'm not saying it's horrible, but they're getting their pretzels or their um, cookies or whatever they're getting for the snack. It, and what you're suggesting is is a new idea to me that you can really get the kids not just to do a club or something a more focused activity, but to get young people involved with changing what the program or even the school maybe eats. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there is work going on like that where. Gosh, I'm trying to think. There's a couple of groups that have done challenges where they've challenged kids to come up with, like, a menu that kids would eat, and then mm-hmm. they give out a prize. Um, there's places where they have, like, a committee that, you know, advises on the snacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people who are doing it. I, I would say you're right. It's it's not the norm. Um, but I would say that it's one of the best ways to make sure that kids, you know, are getting the snacks that they want. And I would also say that the new after-school meal program is a huge opportunity to get more variety and get more food to kids after school because, you know, the snack, you know, it's two components and you pick two of the 
two of the four. So you can serve milk, a grain, a protein, or a fruit and vegetable, which can include a juice. You can't do like juice and milk, but you can Mm -hmm. do a juice if you want. And then with the meal, you know, it's all four of those plus a second serving of fruits and vegetables. And the my friends who are teachers whose programs actually participate say you know, it's healthier food, that they're really excited about the after-school meal program because it means that there's less, you know, prepackaged goldfish crackers uh-huh. in the after-school snack program, that they're getting you know, a turkey sandwich on whole wheat bread and some carrots and an apple and some low-fat milk, and that looks a lot different from some of the prepackaged food that's being served after school. And how do programs get... How can they participate in the new program? Uh, well, they contact their state child and adult care food program and go through the application process. If they're school-based, they can talk to their school nutrition director and see if they'd be willing to sponsor the program for them because most school-based after-school programs who are eligible are getting the food from the school nutrition department. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the school nutrition department has the expertise to run the programs they have, you know, the purchasing power because they're buying breakfast and lunch as well, um, and they have the staff. So it's really a win-win if you can get them to do it. And a lot of school nutrition directors are willing to if you talk to them about it. Do you, do you get the argument a lot that eating healthier, serving healthier meals is more expensive? <sighs> yeah, I mean, people do say that. I mean, and that's one of the, the worries – that some people have made about the new nutrition standards for school meals. I mean, we think we can't afford not to serve healthier food for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that we're paying the cost in obesity and you know, dietary-related chronic illnesses. So we think that investing in it now. But we also think you know, there is some equalizing. So like if, if everybody's buying whole wheat bread for the school lunch program, the cost is going to go down, for example. Right. Um, so... You know, you can move, and industry does move based on the purchasing power. And the federal nutrition programs, you know, provide billions of dollars into the marketplace um, where people are purchasing food. And so, you know, setting norms that are healthier, you know, the market will go in that direction because the resources are there to pay for it. Sure, yeah. There was a, a re- article in the New York Times, uh, I guess about a month or two ago, about sort of debunking the idea that, in general, that eating healthier is more expensive. Um, and it was interesting, though, because it's, it's like sort of different angles on it. It's like the, they gave some very tangible examples of sort of comparing feeding a family of four at McDonald's compared to um, they gave a couple of examples. I think it was like roast chicken and something and like rice and beans and something. It was like something like nutritionally, uh, you know, good and somewhat of a typical meal that that a lot of us would have. But it was pretty plain at the same time. And a lot of people think of eating healthy as needing to be either people associated, I think, with either being organic or people associated with being, um, yeah, expensive, organic. And also a lot of people associated think that it's not going to be as good, right, because they're used to eating certain things and they think eating healthier means yucky or whatever i mean do right you, are these is this, is this just me i mean this is what i'm what i hear a lot of um i don't experience it so much when i'm when i've worked with staff and worked with kids and in my own life that any of those things are true necessarily but it does seem to be this like pr problem that 
um, healthier food has, that it's become equated with like something rarefied and, and difficult to attain. Yeah, I mean, I you know, with the after-school meal program, people immediately are like, oh, gosh, that would be too hard, for example, because mm-hmm. they envision it as being, like, this really big deal. It's got to be, like, a hot meal. It's got to be this huge production. Um, I mean, I think you can prepare healthy food pretty simply and easily, as you were saying. And the same thing with the after-school meal program. It doesn't have to be like hot food. It can be very simple. It could be the baked chicken that you're talking about, green beans, a peach, and some milk, and you've got a healthy meal right there. Well, and a whole wheat roll that would have to mm-hmm. be there to meet the standards. But I mean, you have a healthy meal right there, which wouldn't be that hard to prepare. And you can do cold food as well, which isn't that hard to put together. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think people tend to eat what they're used to. I think people do put a premium on convenience. Um, but I do think, you know, when you introduce kids to healthier food, you know, they love it. My daughter loves broccoli. She'll eat broccoli every day. Um, so, you know, you just have to expose kids to it, have them try it. You know, some people say you have to have food, kids have to try foods at five to seven times before they'll actually mm-hmm. take to it. So you have to actually introduce kids to new food and get them used to eating it. Um, because we are all creatures of habit and, you know, we're trying to change people's, um, you know, the way they've been eating. To switch gears a little bit, I'm wondering, just to hope this isn't too personal of a question, but you've mentioned a couple of times that you've been at BRAC for 13 years. Yeah. uh, You know, it's, it's rare these days in our, especially in, in nonprofits, I feel like, I don't know if it's especially true in nonprofits or if it's just everywhere for someone to stay with an organization that long. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what drives you to, to stay with it that way and, and what sort of motivates you to do this work. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, FRAC is a unique organization because, believe it or not, I'm not the, the most senior person at FRAC. Some of my colleagues have been there for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I stay is really a commitment to the mission because, I, you know, there's lots of different groups out there. At FRAC, you know, we're not an association, um, we really see our role as protecting these programs for the people that they serve, whether they be children or whether they be SNAP recipients. And so that guides, like, all the policy decisions that we make, all the legislative decisions that we make. Um, and that's what I can really get behind. Um, and my job has changed enough over the last 13 years. You know, I started on after school, and then I added it summer, and now I oversee our work on breakfast and lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's gotten, you know, more challenging and more interesting as well. Um, and then I guess the other nice piece about working at FRAC, although it could be one of the challenges as well, um, is that, you know, you we're a small organization, so you kind of do everything. You do mm-hmm. the policy work. You do... Uh, the papers and the reports, and you provide the one-on-one technical assistance with programs and schools. Uh, you work in the coalition. So it's kind of a broad range of of work so that it always stays interesting. Yeah. Well, it, I, I guess I want to say I want to say thank you for, for doing this work because I, I see the after-school and summer field, to me, as part of a larger social justice movement. And, uh, you know, not everybody sees it that way, and, and, and that's fine, but that's sort of the, where, where I come to it from. And uh, the, the issue of, of 
hunger and nutrition is definitely close to my heart. When I was a little kid, I particip- participated in some, you know, nonprofit work as, as a volunteer that my parents had sort of, you know, got me involved with stuff. Um, and so it was something that was sort of, you know, programmed into me that this is fundamentally important. And it obviously is. It's right, basic absolutely. to survival, but it um, there there's something about being, you know, caring about young people's dignity that is really at the foundation of making sure that young people get enough to eat and the right kinds of things to eat. So um, I'm glad that FRAC is doing the work you're doing. I'm glad you're doing the work that, oh, that you're thanks. doing. So thank you. Um, and, you know, thank you for, for being on Please Speak Freely. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm here with Lucy Commissar, who is a freelance writer for uh, newspapers, magazines, online publications, um, and the author of the uh, recently published in the New York Times article called How the Food Industry Eats Your Kid's Lunch, which was a uh, caught my eye anyhow. It was a headline that I had no idea what it meant um, when I first saw it. Did you write the headline or did the, they the wrote editors the he- come up with the it? The editors wrote the headline. A good headline, I thought. Yeah, it definitely catches the eye. Um, so the, the article is essentially about how the corporate food industry is sort of in bed with uh, schools and school districts um, and really profiting off of the federally subsidized school lunch program. Is that well, right? I would put it differently. Different parts of the corporate food industry are in bed with each other and they are taking advantage of the school districts. Mm-hmm. The, the two uh, groups are, one, the uh, food service management companies that run cafeterias in about uh, a, a quarter of the districts, but it's growing. And the other group is the uh, the food processing industry, the companies that make chicken nuggets and all kinds of stuff, which is filled with salt and sugar and is er- ersatz food, really. They work together, uh, and the children and the school districts and the children that they serve are the ones who suffer. I, I definitely want to get into the, the details of this and some of the questions that I have. I, before we get to that, though, it was especially interesting to me that the article is um, listed as an opinion piece. And I I read it a second and third time looking for the opinion, and it, it certainly has a perspective, but I was curious as to how this is an opinion piece. It seems to me like you're, this is journalism. Yes, it's journalism, and uh, that's, the section is an opinion section, and maybe I should have put at the end something that says, this is really terrible, but I think that people got the idea after reading the story mm-hmm. that this is really terrible, so didn't really need to, to put that line at the end. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like it it almost undermines the facts because when you have – I mean, it's straight facts and reporting here and evidence and the research that you did. And when it says it's opinion, it almost is like, well, this is what Lucy Commissar thinks. Well, if people – People read the article, and online there were links to a lot of the documentation. Mm -hmm. I think they know that it's it's a truthful article, and it's not just an opinion. Right. Actually, I had in the original version the last line said, uh, "Parents, parents ought to occupy this territory," Mm. which was an opinion, Uh but which was taken out. Yeah, and maybe it was the occupy thing that. Yeah. Well, there was there could have been that, and there was also a space problem. I had many, many more things in there that unfortunately had to be taken out. Mm-hmm. 
Um, is there is it possible that you do you ever publish the longer versions, the sort of unedited versions of your pieces? I want to publish a longer version of this, and the Nation uh, Institute Investigative Fund, which provided the money to support the research and reporting, uh, is seeking uh, publication that would be interested in publishing a much longer version of it. It's 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 written. It just needs to find a home. That, that was another aspect of the context of this that was interesting to me is that this piece was the the reporting the it says the investigative reporter and author who received support from the investigative fund a project of the nation institute for the reporting of this essay um how does the support of that institute uh how did that impact your work in 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 researching and reporting on this topic it may it meant that I could spend uh, many many months working on this without mm-hmm. any money except some money from them, and it, it wasn't enough really to to pay for all of the research. But right. it was a it was a, a stipend that helped. But unless if if you're working freelance, if you don't have any um, money, uh, how do you do the work? That's that's difficulty. And what what is the investigative fund's interest in this particular subject? They're concerned about the, uh, kids getting bad nutrition uh, and kids getting bad nutrition because corporate uh, food companies are ripping off the system. They're making money. They make money off the kids getting bad nutrition. Let me tell you how it works. The food uh, service companies and the, the biggest ones uh, that run cafeterias, not only in schools but in hospitals and colleges and in government offices and businesses, they – uh, they get kickbacks. Well, they don't like to call it kickbacks. Rebates. Mm-hmm. They have gotten. They get rebates from the uh, manufacturers of things like food nuggets and sugary cereals and other things you might not not want your kid to have. Uh, this was discovered by uh, the USDA uh, audits in about 2002. It took them a number of years to to finally issue some kind of an order about this. And in 2007, they said that uh, the schools had to get the the true invoices. They had to be told about the – the contracts had to be uh, specific about the rebates and schools had to be told about the rebates. And the USDA, the Agriculture Department, would not reimburse the schools – for any part of the lunch costs that represented the rebates because this, the agriculture department gives a lot of money to the schools, essentially right. paying for the most of the, the school lunch program. Mm-hmm. Kids pay some. Some of the pro, uh, school lunches are subsidized and some are free. This is all depending on income. They said that if the company is charging you a cost in a cost-plus contract, this is how much we paid for these chicken nuggets, right. uh, but it's not really true because they got a rebate, but they just didn't tell the school about it. Right. They have to tell the school about the rebate, and we're not going to reimburse you for the rebate because you should be getting that deducted from your cost anyway. Well, the, the uh, companies didn't do it, and I did an investigative story in 2009 for In These Times based on a couple of whistleblowers who gave me documentation about how the whole market strategy of Sodexo, which is where they worked, mm-hmm. was based on getting kickbacks. And uh, about a year after that, the New York State Attorney General, Andrew Cuomo, uh, settled with Sodexo for $20 million for its in what they said in their press release was illegal overcharges. Now, um, 
This is why the the food service management companies want to go to the big companies because they will pay them kickbacks. If you go to some very small farmer, some mm-hmm. neighborhood store, they can't afford to pay those kind of kickbacks. Plus, the, the kickback contracts are worked out nationally, even globally. These these companies are in dozens of countries. Sodexo is in 80 countries worldwide. Mm-hmm. So when they make a contract with Pepsi-Cola for kickbacks – and they have a nice name for it probably, rebates. But this could be global and certainly it's national. So they can't get the same kind of deal from the local farmer or the local bakery. So that's why they want to go to the companies that make the ersatz food, which is uh, full of salt and sugar and fat and trans fat. Mm-hmm. The world in which I operate is the world of grant-funded after-school programs and summer programs. They also get to benefit from the USDA program through the snack program and supper program, which is really just, it's the lunch program extended into the um, afternoon and evening. Um, And so recently I had a chance to speak for Please Speak Freely with uh, Crystal Fitzsimmons of the Food Research and Action Center, which is sort of an advocacy group for uh, uh, various things around food and nutrition, particularly for young people. And Crystal focuses on helping after-school and summer programs access these subsidies. Um, all of the programs we work with are funded by grants, and the grants are dependent on the percentage of free and reduced lunch eligibility. So that index of free and reduced lunch eligibility is used for much more than just whether you get lunch or not. It's also used to say how economically poor a school is. So if you have less than 40% free or reduced lunch eligibility, you can't apply for these grants in New York State, for example. Reading this article, although it's about the lunch program, it for me it really um, struck a chord. Not only because of the what I would consider to be corruption that you just described, um, and all of the connections that that has to large scale corporate corruption, to environmental issues, to all kinds of things that are um, you know discussed in lots of different contexts, but very specifically because. To me, this is a problem that hugely disproportionately has an effect on economically poor families and children. Because as you say in here, there's, what is it, 32 million children in the U.S. get lunch at schools that participate in the National School Lunch Program, and about 21 million of those eat free or reduced price meals. So that's you know roughly two-thirds of the kids who benefit from this National School Lunch Program are economically poor, come from economically poor families, low-income families, however we want to refer to it. So this is a, to me, this is a, an especially uh, bad crime against those families that are most vulnerable anyway. There's no reason uh, why schools can't have their own kitchens and have uh, skilled kitchen workers make food. Some do. And some do. Uh, and But then you don't get... There's no kickbacks involved in that. So a place, a company like Sodexo or Aramark, they don't want to do that. And the schools can decide just to cook up the stuff right in their kitchens or they can send them to the processing companies Mm -hmm. and take some nice wholesome chicken and make them into chicken nuggets uh, and or take some uh, tomato paste and cheese and make it into pizza. So the decision is of the school district, but if they give their – 
management of the of the cafeteria over to the uh, companies like Sodexo, Aramark, and Chartwells, those companies want to get the rebates, so they're more likely to send them to be processed. And that that's an aspect of this which is really sort of boggling to me. It, you, you called it out in your article referencing a 2008 study by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that found that by the time many healthier commodities reach the students themselves, they have about the same, quote, the same nutritional value as junk foods. So that means that it started out as wholesome and healthful uh, ingredients, food, things like potatoes, chicken, things that can be healthy. And they were actually intentionally and for a profit, turned into the equivalent of junk food. Well, they, it's not that they want to make junk food. It's, it's when you process something, what does that mean? First of all, you have to make it um, so that it can uh, last a long time, uh, and you want to make it uh, cheaper. So it's cheaper to take some chicken and mix it with uh, uh, soy flour mm-hmm. than just to have pure chicken, right? Mm-hmm. So you you've mix it with all kinds of filler, and then you fry it, and then you put it in big boxes. Uh, and then the companies, the Sodexos and Aramark and Chartwells, they can uh, fire or reduce the pay of their kitchen workers because all the workers now have to do is put these things in the microwave. Right. They don't have to know how to cook. It all goes in the microwave. Right. So – uh, they save money on that, and the profits go to these companies. Which leads me to another part that, that you call attention to here and that's been recently really publicized and satirized around Congress really getting behind this way of thinking. The thing that's been satirized is that they recently were, were talking about uh, pizza as a vegetable, which sort of harkened back to Reagan saying ketchup was a vegetable. Yeah. I mean, it's all coming back <laughs> to the same thing, that that counting a couple tablespoons of tomato paste as a serving of vegetables. Yeah, well, what what they were saying is that there is, a, I think, an eighth of, of a cup of the tomato paste on a slice of pizza or some small portion, so it's a couple of tablespoons. And they wanted to give it the value of four times that volume uh, of vegetable. Mm-hmm. And and the USDA said no. You have to count if we everything else we're doing is by volume. You know, right. a, half a cup of broccoli or a half a cup of carrots or a half a cup of whatever is half a cup. Right. It's a unit of measurement. It's, it's an agreed upon yes. unit. So you cannot say except if it's pizza, then that's <laughs> considered uh, to be a full serving. Right. Well, when it's, it's a pizza cup. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but it's really because you only sp- you can't count the whole pizza as a vegetable because most of it is not. But but they want to count the whole thing as a bit, and that's yeah. what that fight was. And the other part of it was about potatoes, and some senators from potato-growing states got that knocked out. Uh, the USDA said you can't count potatoes as a vegetable every single day. You can only use a starchy vegetable, and it wasn't only potatoes. There are a few others. But starchy vegetables could not be vegetables at every single meal, every single day. Right. You but they knocked that out. So you know what you can have? People uh, for lunch can be uh, eating French fries and pizza every day for lunch. And that's every vegetables. Day. Every day. Because and it, it just defies common sense. That's right because potatoes are considered vegetables. It's a starchy vegetable. And the uh, sauce on pizza is now considered a full serving of vegetables. So here you go with French fries and pizza at lunch every single day and that's within the guidelines. And that's what our Congress did and Obama signed it. Mm-hmm. And it starts to take on sort of a sort of dystopian sort of uh, feel to me because you, you have – you quote um, in your article, you, you quote 
the representatives of these food company food service companies saying things that are how they represent themselves is just to me just blatantly false i mean saying doing all of these things that you're describing and saying that their um, philosophy is quote to promote scratch cooking where possible and encourage variety and nutritionally balanced meals they can say that and they can put it on their website and they can make commercials about it and then do, do completely the opposite of that and somehow get away with it. Well, where possible is never possible. That's the weasel word. Yeah. It's where possible. And yeah, it's all PR. They do a lot of PR. But uh, then you have to look to – in some places where parents have been active, they have gotten uh, kitchens changed. They have gotten – even gotten the food service management companies to do a little better, mm-hmm. uh, to try to get uh, local farm products uh, and other locally produced products – but you really need to have the parents on them. In, in one case, which I mentioned in the, in the article, a woman in, uh, in Westchester, happens to be in uh, the Katona-Lewisboro School District. She was president of the school board. They had a very good um, uh, person as the superintendent of schools, and he supported them in getting Aramark to change and to get better food in the schools. He left. He retired. And another person came in by the name of Robert Rowley, and everything changed. And uh, she's and, and and the the parents who had been on the wellness committee, which is required by law, uh, were kicked off. Mm-hmm. And and Aramark went back to serving uh, uh, pizza and sugary drinks. This is what the kids want. They say. Well, it, it's right. what it's what Aramark it's right. what Aramark wants. Right. And and this this uh, superintendent had no interest. So you need a combination of parents and also could be community people and uh, uh, the principals and the superintendents who are willing to support them. Then you can – look, they make the contract. They can say to these companies, either you make these changes or or we're going to somebody else or we're we're just going to do it ourselves. But we don't want you anymore if you're giving our kids this bad food. But it takes organized – I think this is where there's real hope here because this is something where, as you said, uh, parents and and educators and especially leaders of schools and superintendents can really make a change without having to do legislative changes. Mm -hmm. They can change within the current system, use the resources in a different way. I visited a school in Arizona a couple of years ago, high school, uh, that – it was actually a middle school and a high school together – and they took it a step further from not only did they take the contract back and make the food themselves, they involved the students in, in preparing the food and made it a whole learning environment where young people can not only learn about nutrition and about cooking, but they can also play some leadership role in their school. They can be a part of the design of the program. Uh, and that's where a lot of after-school programs want to go. That's the direction a lot of after-school programs want to go is uh, creating youth-centered environments where young people are actually in the lead and involved with things. And a lot of times it can feel really frustrating because they feel like they're at the whim and mercy of the larger school because they're getting, they have to tap into the school's lunch and snack and supper program. Um, but for if you can find those brave and creative leaders who will take this on, it's something that they can actually make progress in within a couple, within a year or, or less or um, a, a relatively short time span for the kids they work with now. I think we're at, we're at a stage uh, just before some kind of national movement could be organized. Uh, and I think part of what's needed is this informational exchange because people just don't know what's out there. There are farm-to-school programs, and they are 
uh, working in in some states, mm-hmm. uh, and I heard of one where um, they they were actually growing their own bison. But this is this wow. is in a prairie state, <laughs> and it, it was That's it was some kind of ambitious. a deal where uh, they were getting bison that was grown nearby uh, that were grow. Uh-huh. It may have even been lean meat. I've heard. <laughs> I don't know, but it, there are efforts. Uh, uh, that are happening. So it's not as if somebody has to invent what should be done. The efforts need to be communicated mm-hmm. around the country so that people in in places that don't know about them do know about them, and there ought to be ways to help them replicate. And uh, I think that one way, a, a major thing that needs to happen is uh, some kind of coordination or communication um, effort. There isn't any that I know of wasn't as as a journalist doing this, I was trying to find communities where uh, parents were trying to improve the school food, particularly in cases where there are food service management companies. It was very hard. Mm. I spent a lot of time and called a lot of people, even to get the information uh, of where some parents were. But there wasn't any place I could go. Except uh, if somebody knew somebody, they would yeah. they would send me to that person. I think that uh, the next step, since I can see that this is percolating around the country, would be to have some way of uh, people uh, and groups to communicate with each other, so they know that they're out there. I think that this this issue it's connected to so many other things. It's not you know it's not just about food. Um, there's uh, even in your article, I think I believe you cite some of the connections to uh, academic performance and nutrition. I have always felt like there's another aspect of it, which is just treating particularly economically poorer kids in a less than humane way through not only the content of the food, but the way it's presented, the way everything is wrapped in plastic and single servings and with so much waste. Um, when you go to uh, wealthier schools, when you go to um, corporate events, you're served in a more dignified way. You're served with real real cutlery. Um, everything is not sanitized because everyone's afraid that someone's going to contaminate some, someone else. Uh, and there's, to me, there's an aspect there that's a larger um, sense of, of, of dignity and humane treatment of young people that this is a real tangible expression of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing that I I wanted to call attention to that was in your article, which really galled me, was the notion that these food service companies can sort of uh, whitewash their uh, bad behavior through support of nutrition education and other sorts of efforts like that. And this is something that we've seen in lots of industries that are doing bad things for public health, tobacco, and other industries where you you can spend – um, you know, $100 million on an advoca- advertising campaign for something that is detrimental to people's health and then spend a million dollars on funding education programs and somehow it's supposed to all sort of come out in the wash. The, the quote from um, your article is uh, Monica Zimmer, a Sodexo spokeswoman, uh, who says that nutrition they, – they point to the company's support for nutrition education to encourage young people to eat more fruits and vegetables. And that is just uh, – it's offensive to me that someone from a company who is uh, calling, and you know, I don't know if it's Sodexo in particular, but from an industry that is calling pizza vegetable and serving potatoes a few times a week and calling it 
you know, adequate nutrition would say that they're supporting, they're encouraging young people to eat more fruits and vegetables. Yeah, there's a, a good Sodexo story told to me by Dorothy Braley from Kids First in Rhode Island. Uh, she has been dealing with Sodexo for quite some time. They're trying to get them to uh, to have more fruits and vegetables. She said in one case there was a high school of 1,200 uh, students and she saw broccoli on the menu for lunch that day. Mm-hmm. And she went into the kitchen. There was one case of broccoli for twelve hundred kids. Right. So that's that's what that means. They they're not really serving it. They sign up uh, to Michelle Obama's programs and every every conference or program you can think of. They right. sign up and they're a sponsor. They'll throw it, a little money at it. It doesn't mean anything. It's right. all public relations. Yeah. Well, uh, I hope that um, this conversation can uh, help others. Uh, learn how that they can make a difference with this. And I, I want to say that I, I really appreciate uh, the piece that you wrote here in the New York Times and uh, even more than that, all the work you've been doing over the years um, in, in research and reporting on this issue because um, it's it's one that's very close to my heart and is really, I think, uh, important to making a difference in um, all kinds of ways. Um, and thanks for taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.